This is the East TraumaCast. TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everyone. This is Matt Martin here with another East Trauma Cast. Uh, today, we've got a great topic uh, that I think most of you should be interested in on complex abdominal wall reconstruction. Uh, and joining us today, we have uh, my co-moderators for the Trauma Cast series, uh, Dr. Andrew Bernard, Dr. Levi Proctor, and Dr. David Morris. Uh, guys, thanks a lot for joining me. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks. This should be great. And uh, we're really fortunate to have well-recognized experts in the field of complex abdominal reconstruction with us today. Uh, we have Dr. Bob Martindale, who's a professor of surgery at Oregon Health Sciences University, uh, and Dr. Sean Orenstein, uh, who is one of his partners and is an assistant professor of surgery at Oregon Health Sciences University. Uh, and they, uh, they have a great interest in uh, abdominal wall reconstruction. Uh, they also run uh, multiple courses uh, training other surgeons in this procedure. So, so Bob and Sean, thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. Pleasure to be here. All right, let's just, uh, we'll start off with uh, kind of a statement of the problem. Uh, and I'll say, I, I didn't train too long ago. I finished my residency about 10 years ago. And, and I don't remember even the phrase complex abdominal wall reconstruction even being thrown around a lot. Everything was just a ventral hernia repair. And, and now we're hearing this all over the place. Uh, so, so maybe if you just comment on, has this become an increasing problem or is it just something that's always been there that we didn't recognize? And, and what do you think is the difference between ventral hernia repair or complex abdominal wall reconstruction? Uh, I think we'll start with you, Bob. Sure. I, I think the problem uh, is part of nomenclature that we have got a bigger problem than we had in the past. We know now that, you know, for example, in, in 2011, the U.S. spent $3.2 billion on ventral hernia repairs, which is about three times what it was for several reasons. One is we truly are seeing increased numbers of hernias, partly because of the obesity issue in America today. Partly because you know we're we're seeing people getting multiple repairs, which we've seen over the last 20 years. We had about 15 years where people did bridged repairs; they just sewed the mesh to the edges and never really addressed the problems of the bigger ones of bringing the rectus back to the midline. You know, sort of readjusting the musculature to allow normal anatomic structures. So I think that's the other big issue. Is so we're now looking at the complications of guys that had them 10, 15 years ago. And I think that's that's a big part. But we're uh, this. There are still the small little two, three, five, ten centimeter hernias that you can fix. Uh, you know, usually with mesh now, and that's part of it. But I think part of the issue is the marketing of the industry. You know, that's a big push here. Everybody's saying mesh for everything, and the data is supporting the idea that we should be using mesh for everything over three centimeters. Of course, that propagates the industry to build more meshes, and we're being told these have got to be repaired a lot more commonly. And uh, so it's a combination of things. All right, Sean, your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree with everything that Bob said. What I'll add is that I think there is some difference between a ventral hernia repair and a complex abdominal wall reconstruction. 
um, you know, there's a whole range of sizes from a couple of centimeters to 15, 20 plus centimeters in width and Swiss cheese defects and complexity of the actual hernia and location of the hernia. And when I think of complex abdominal wall reconstruction, I think of more than just uh, patching the hole, even if just closing the hole and, and uh, placing a mesh, that's kind of in my standard ventral hernia repair category. But once I start to um, dissect various planes, use a little more advanced and complex techniques for these challenging hernias, I think it does put it in, that, in another category that would be more defined as abdominal wall reconstruction. And um, yeah, another theory that goes along with abdominal wall reconstruction is trying to put the abdomen back more or less to the way it was before the hernia developed, trying to get the rectus muscles back in the midline, uh, using a variety of techniques to do that, um, trying to you know, make that abdominal wall a stronger, more durable organ than it was uh, before um, all the badness happened. Yeah, can I can I add to that? I, th I think we get into a cycle too, and as as uh, Sean was saying there, we can never make it as strong as it was. We know that every time you have a hernia repair, and our average here is about 3.2 hernias in my clinic, as a number of hernias they've had before they get to me. So every time we do it, we get less and less strength when the recurrence rates are higher. So that's what's brought on this concept of we've got to do more than just sew in a piece of mesh and pull the fascia together. I think we uh, we published a paper this year with Mike Liang and Scott Roth, real nice paper that in uh, Jackson, in 2015. They basically talk. The title of the article is "The Hernia Vicious Cycle," and it talks about this very issue. You get one little hernia repair for a three centimeter umbilical, and your BMI is 40. Then it comes back, and now it's a bigger repair. The next thing you know, that gets infected, mesh, and it's out. And you know, so I think that's really what we're looking at now. And that's a great point. And uh... You know, we always love identifying someone to blame. So, so who can we point the finger at for this, uh, you know, increasing problem? Is, is this just a natural consequence of obesity? Uh, is this because we're doing too many open abdomens? Uh, you know, that I think that's another uh, rash we've been seeing. Is this because of failed prior repairs? Uh, what do you guys see as kind of the top couple causative yeah. factors? <laughs> All of the above. Yeah, I think the open abdomens are decreasing. I mean, five years ago, I was probably doing, you know, the big skin graft on the bowel uh, hernias. The young guys came in, left open, you know, too much fluid, you know, abdominal compartment syndrome, and then it happened to skin graft thing. Those are gone, basically. We do maybe two or three a year now, whereas 10 years ago, eight years ago, probably eight years ago, we were doing one a month. You know, so those are decreasing with our new resuscitation, less volume, you know, more blood, blood products, et cetera. We're, we're not seeing that anymore. Uh, but we're we're seeing bigger and bigger hernias. But, you know, now there's a lot of people who say BMI is over 50. In fact, in our clinic, and Sean I, I will agree, a BMI over 50, we just don't do any more electively unless there's some very specific things, very narrow hernia, lots of bowel out there, that sort of thing. Because there's a 100% recurrence rate. And as you know, that's still the population which is still growing. You know, obesity in America has leveled off as of 2012. We're not rising as a as a country anymore, going up. But the BMI 40 to 50 is still almost going up exponentially. So that certainly is the patient factors, and that's why we're pretty aggressive in our uh, pre-op care pathway to get their weight down, to optimize their nutrition, to get their diabetes under control with a reasonable A1C, 
get them to stop smoking at least 30 days um, in order to try and decrease their risk. They're still going to be at high risk. We've got to bring that risk down as much as we can before embarking on a, on a major abdominal wall reconstruction. So patient factors is certainly a large part of, of your question. Now, there's also right. the, um, the techniques part as well. And I, I, you, know, you bring up some good points that I think there are some um, sort of increased spread of knowledge of variety of hernia technique repairs. Um, and so I think that, you know, maybe several years ago or 10 or 20 years ago, when there was some sort of medium-sized hernias, perhaps they weren't repaired um, as thoroughly as they are now because um, the degree of abdominal wall reconstruction and, and other repairs um, is kind of going into the mainstream now. Yeah, we're teaching, uh, you know, like you mentioned, these little mini fellowships we have where the people come in and we spend a day uh, sort of talking about techniques and going to the cadaver lab and and doing all sorts of different repairs on cadaver lab, which are new to people. And, uh, you know, the TARS repair and in some cases the anterior component release and little tricks and methods how to do those. And, you know, the courses are packed for the year. I mean, we're basically, you know, so they're very, very busy people wanting to learn the new techniques for multiple reasons. You know, general surgeries, a lot of general surgeries going out to, to the subspecialists. And so I think this is still a place which is squarely in the domain of general surgery. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a great lead-in to uh, the fact that we're going to be having a, an East Live webinar December 7th uh, where Dr. Uh, Ornstein and Dr. Martindale are going to be uh, giving a talk and showing some video clips uh, on exactly some of the, the techniques uh, that they've uh, developed and that uh, I think we should be using. So let me ask you about uh, who should be doing these. Uh, you know, should should we be specializing, regionalizing? You know, again, should this be done by you know a de dedicated complex abdominal wall service, or you know, can any general surgeon with uh, you know an interest and uh, you know uh, basic expertise take these on? And then uh, uh, Bob and Sean, I'll ask you to comment on that, and then I'll go to the uh, Andrew, Levi, and David, and, and ask you uh, you know how it's being done at your institutions. So we'll start with uh, Bob and Sean. Go ahead, Sean. Well, um, you know, that's, it's a great question, and um, certainly if if a surgeon is comfortable taking care of complex repairs, then they, they should go for it. I mean, there's a lot of hernias around there. There's certainly no shortage of ventral hernias to be repaired. So if you're comfortable taking care of and managing some of these complex patients, then go for it. Um, if there is any question about that, then uh, the, the patients, you know, the, a lot of these patients have had two and three and five and seven repairs before that have failed or had infections and fistulas, then perhaps those patients should go uh, to a center that has a higher volume, that is trained in um, a variety of techniques. And um, I, I think we'll get to a little bit later as far as preferred techniques. But it's, it's always useful to know more than one technique. You've got to know a few because certain hernias are going to require one operation and that a different hernia will be more suitable for another type of hernia repair. Yeah, I, I would agree with Sean 100%. Uh, you know, for us, we purposely have not put a big brand out there, you know, OHSU Hernia Center. And we did that because we really feel we're not trying to take people's routine hernia business. 
we're happy to take the ones they don't want. And if we look at our 62.7% of our hernias are referred to me from other surgeons. So I think the people know. They look at this and they go, oh, man, that's not for me. I mean, you know, part of us, we got residents and we're going to be here all night long with them. And, you know, they're going to be an event for a day or two when they've got loss of domain and all those other issues, which, you know, most guys will know. They look at this they go, you know what, I don't need this. I'm going to send it off. So I, I don't think we should ever say we can't do it. There's certainly nothing a general surgeon we do with these weird techniques, not weird techniques, these, these uh, advanced techniques maybe that any good general surgeon can do. There is nothing fancy here. I think it's the repetitive nature of it, and if you do them, you know, as anything, if you do it every day, you get better at it. Okay, so Andrew and Levi, how are these uh, handled at Kentucky, your center? Yeah, so good question. So uh, we, Dr. Ross, one of our colleagues that works here, so he has he's one of our herniologists as well. So he has his own uh, you know practice where he gets referrals. Uh, we get a lot of referrals too from the community um, for this, and a few of us in our group, Andrew, me, and Phil Chang, and a few others, kind of tackle these when they come in. Um, I I think the thing that I struggle with the most is. Uh, how to get these people to lose weight uh, because we do not have a bariatric service here uh, for the very large people and they all smoke and they all have, I mean, the diabetes and stuff we can control, but having a protocolized structure and follow-up is not something that we are have a very good setup for. So I was curious to know what the, you know, what type of behavior modification or dietary changes do you do to be successful and how do you continue the follow-up, is there anything that you do particularly in your follow-up to keep that that uh, goal to be set? That's a, that's a great question, Let's uh, and let's have uh, Bob and Sean answer that next after we hear from uh, Andrew and David. So Andrew, what do you think? Well, I, you know, I agree with Levi. I think we as trauma surgeons are uniquely suited for this. Uh, we're used to the complex abdominal closure. So we're suited for it, but I, I like what Bob said uh, and Sean said. You sort of have to have an interest in the really complicated ones. There are hernias, and there are some of these big ones. And I think you know, our approach is most of us trauma surgeons fix hernias. We fix big hernias. We are resources for our non-trauma general surgery colleagues. When the colorectal guys have a tough abdominal wall closure, we're there for them. But at the same time, I think we all have a threshold here at Kentucky for saying that's one that I'm going to send to the guy in my group that really does the complicated ones. That's my approach. I'll do a lot of them. I'll do the complicated ones. But there, there is a threshold that I have, and I'll, I'll pass them on. I think that's the right judgment for most people. you got to like doing the really tough ones. And you got to go to the courses or follow the literature to really stay up on the edge. All right, David, how about uh, from Minnesota? I agree. We we have a sort of a similar approach. We don't have a formal service or a referral center or anything like that. Uh, me and my partners, we all do a lot of really complex abdominal wall reconstruction. Um, we all have varying techniques. It would be nice to standardize it. Um, what I would really like to see and maybe hear some comments about is whether or not you think it would be appropriate to create like a – like a hernia board like we have for tumor board or for cancer or something like that to sort of get everybody's ideas. Because I, what I find a lot of times is I'll get a complex patient in clinic and I'll tell them, you know, you need to lose weight. And then during the time I go and I ask all my partners,
customers and everybody I can run into. Hey, what would you do? And you know, what are your ideas and thoughts? And so, some sort of formalized structure I think would be useful. But we do not have a, a, a pathway or anything like that, which I think would be helpful. All right. Well, I think that's a perfect lead. And then uh, I think both you and Levi are, get at the issue of. Uh, uh, how do we optimize these patients or get them ready for surgery or or if they're frankly not ready and uh Bob you mentioned you know BMI over 50 is a contraindication because uh, they all recur so so uh, what are you guys doing to get these patients ready for surgery in terms of weight loss in terms and in terms of smoking cessation and, and any other key things we should be looking for yeah, great. I'll, uh, I'll I'll start, and Sean can fill in there for your answer. But I I think we try several pronged. I had, I just finished in clinic now, and we had several today that said, okay, we got to quit smoking. So the smoking, then we we sort of hint that we're going to draw continine on them, your urine. But you know, unless they're young and we don't think they're going to quit, then most of it. Most people are pretty good about quitting. We give them hypnosis, nicotine patches. You know, we know that nicotine is not the problem. It's actually the smoking. That data is pretty clear. Some very good data on the annals in the last few years in that area. So that that's helpful. The weight loss is tougher. I think the key with the weight loss is the people need to know that you're going to be with them and you're going to work with them. You're not just abandoning them. We go, we give them a goal. We say, what do you think? Do you think you can do this on your own? Do you want to talk to the bariatric surgeons? We have a dietitian in clinic who's willing to talk to them. We have bariatric dietitians we set them up with. So we don't, the key is, you know, you can't say to them, listen, you got to lose 100 pounds before we do this. Otherwise, they're going to come back. And then they're going to go somewhere else. And eventually, you're going to see them back emergently with infected mesh. You know, in there. So, and that's not what you want. So, you let them know that you're supportive of it. You know, it's very difficult for them to lose. And then we get them hooked in either with a bariatric service or with the, with the dietitians, and we see them back in a couple of months and see how they're doing. That I think is very uh, productive. The glucose control is not too bad. We have diabetic nurse practitioners we get them to see, and we get them pretty well organized to get a hemoglobin A1C below 8, even 7.5 in some cases before we operate. And to me, those are the three big issues, diabetes, weight control, and blood sugar control. That's 80% of the problems we see. And we maximize those, and after that, then it's subtle things, you know, little things about infection issues and preoperative antibiotics and that they have prior MRSA in their mesh and that sort of thing. Any other Bob? thoughts, John? Sorry, is there another question there? No, no. Any other thoughts, Sean? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think there's some. Bob raises some excellent points, and just to piggyback that with realistic expectations um, for the patient, and it's important to set those goals even at, at that first visit. Um, you know, when I, you know, there's patients that have never been told they're obese or overweight, and they're kind of they're baffled a little bit that, you know, and I tell them, I'm not trying to insult you. I'm, you know, here's some of the numbers. Here's the data. I do the BMI calculator on my phone right in front of them so they can see the numbers. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's good to we set, a, we set a goal and say, okay, so you're away this much right now. If you can lose X number of pounds, we're going to drop your BMI by five points. That will greatly uh, improve the quality of your repair. You overall will feel better. And here's what we're going to do is because your hernia is not urgent to get this fixed, I'm going to bring you back in a few months, and we're going to see how you do and kind of kind of go from there. And uh, I set realistic goals. If I tell them to lose 100, 150 pounds, I'll never see them again. But if I can set a realistic goal of, say, 20 to 30 pounds and um, – 
you know, if I bring them back in three months and we set a goal of 20 and they and they lost 18, I mean, I'm going to high-five them. That's, that's wonderful. They're making some effort to put some skin in the game, and um, they're, they're going to benefit their own body and the repair in the long term. Now, um, maybe we need to go more than that and say, okay, you're doing awesome. Let's keep going. Let's bring you back another three to six months. And it's usually initially with, with diet modification and increased exercise. You know, many of the patients are debilitated and they can't exercise as much. So it does make it challenging. Um, I certainly send many referrals, as many as I can, to our bariatric team or um, if they're from afar. I mean, I'll have them go to any local bariatric team, anything it takes to get this weight off them, which I really think is one of the biggest contributors of uh, morbid, periodic morbidity and recurrence in these patients. Um, the final thing that I'll say that I use just to kind of get it to really hit home with the patient is I use the CEDAR app, it's C-E-D-A-R. It's a free uh, app for your phone developed by uh, Todd Henneford and the group at Carolinas. And it's a, it's a risk calculator, and you put in various characteristics, their height and weight, um, are they smoking, or do they, are they diabetes, are you gonna, and then sort of plans for your operation. Are you going to make skin flaps? Are you going to do a component separation? And you put all these questions in, these answers in, which takes maybe two minutes, do it right in front of them, and then it, and it tells you a risk of periop complications. And when you show that patient that they have a 67 or 84 percent risk of a periop complication, it really sticks home to them, and they're like, "Wow, um, I really need to do something about this." And um, really, to my surprise, if you get them to lose weight and you get them to stop smoking, they're usually on a path. And I've seen many patients continue to lose weight post-op. They continue to stop smoking post-op. Sean, I too use the Cedar app. I like it a lot. I use oh, it just like right. you do. Yeah, it adds objectivity to it, so they don't just think that you're avoiding operating on them because they're big. I think it's terrific. Let me ask you a, a follow-up question. Do you guys use 50? Is is that the right BMI? <laughs> I, I try to hold it 35. I like them under 30. I try to hold it 35, uh, unless they're threatening incarceration or something. What's the right BMI? Well, I, yeah, Bob and I'll probably go back and forth. There's no, there's definitely not a true number. There's no best number. We we met uh, as a consensus group to try and answer that very question, and we really could not come up with a great answer. We use 50 as our pretty our hard, fast cutoff, saying no, we're kind of do an operation unless they're extremely high risk for a strangulated bowel, small little defect with a ton of bowel out there. Those are ones we may do some kind of temporizing procedure. Short of that. We don't operate above 50. Um, I would say the 40 to 50 range um, really try to get their weight down. Um, so that our 50 is our hard cutoff. I think 40 to we'll operate above 40, but they they gotta again they gotta put some skin in the game. They gotta make an effort to lose some weight. And um, I don't know, Bob, if you have something else to add to that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think 50 is, is sort of the shot. We, at their consensus, we had 16 general surgeons who do hernias primarily around the table, and we did not come to a conclusion. There was anywhere from 35 to 60. Uh, oh. And so nobody uh, would say now. If I, What I kind of go by is if we look at our database, we get about 2,600 hernias in our database. And we look at that, and where do we get that line go up almost straight up? At about between 45 and 50 is where we see this rapid curve up for recurrence. And like I was mentioning, we've got 100% recurrence over BMI 50. BMI 45, we get about a 60% five-year recurrence, four-year recurrence. 
BMI at 35, we do pretty well. You know, we get about 22, 23%, you know, and that's people that have multiple hernias. So, you know, but BMI over 45, 50 is where it really shoots up. So that's kind of where I draw the line. I tell them all to get down if they can at 45 and above, but I just say, no, I can't, I can't justify doing a BMI of 50. And I said, I look at it, I go, look, I'd be doing you a disservice and me a disservice. You know, you'd be wasting our time, and we'd be wasting your time. And the next time we have to repair this, it's going to be even harder. And most of them, are, they'll, they'll listen to that. I think if they know you care about them and you're willing to work with them to get it down, then people are on your side. Bob, you mentioned hernia registry. Last year at the East meeting, Randy Jandik presented the National Hernia Registry. People can voluntarily uh, contribute their data to that allows all of us to analyze our own performance and benchmark it. What do you think about registries like that, open registries? We've yeah, well, that's the AAHQ. Yeah, we, we're a member. We're just now getting up and running to put them in. Sean knows more about that. He's been sort of running that side of it. Sean, you got any comments on it? I think it's a yeah, great the thing. The Society has their quality collaborative, and yeah. it's an online um, registry that you you just have to be a member of, a, uh, of the American Hernia Society, but uh, the, it is free to be a part of the, the collaboration. And you enter your data in. Right now, it's just for ventrals. It's not for inguinal hernia. It's only for ventrals. And it's really a neat way. Um, you can look at your own data, uh, and you can compare it to the whole group. You can see what your complication rate is, your recurrence rate, and, you know, what are you using biologic mesh, synthetic mesh, and what's your BMI and diabetes um, compared to the rest of the country. Um, so it's, it's a neat way to, to get all this data compiled and, um, it, you know, the big pitch line with the AHSQC is that um, at some point, you know, they're going to figure out our uh, payments based on outcomes and, and you know quality and value. And this is this is a first step for for surgeons that do you know a lot of hernia repairs to really see their own data compared to everybody else in the country because it's only in the U.S. just right now. I think they're planning on expanding it internationally, and um, that will. Um, help us, I think, in the long run as far as seeing really, truly how complex these patients are. These aren't just run-of-the-mill hernias we're doing. These are big, complex things that um, patients get sick, and this all documents all that. Okay, so so quickly, before we move on to some technique issues, uh, I recently uh, discussed this with a, a pretty well-known expert in abdominal reconstruction, and, and his opinion was that smoking is an absolute contraindication uh, he will check nicotine levels on any patient who has a history of smoking, and, and if they have not stopped smoking, they do not get surgery. Um, just what do you think of that, uh, Bob and Sean? And do you have a similar policy, or are you a little more liberal? No, I do. I, I tell them, no, we're not going to do it. Now, do we check your incontinence and everybody? Mm, no. You know, because we found logistically it's very difficult because a lot of our people come from Alaska, Hawaii, you know, Idaho, Montana, Northern California. So we get a big draw. It's very tough to call a primary care guy there and go, hey, listen, I'm going to have this guy come into your office and get some urine, you know, and they go, okay, great, you know, and they're not too interested. But now young guys who seem, you know, the typical sort of invincible trauma patient, you know, so that's not going to happen to me. I can go get, you know, smoking two packs a day. Those guys, we go, we get a urine on it. We won't do it unless we got a urine shows negative. 
So I think if you play it by ear, if you really believe they're doing it, and they, you know, you've had nice talks with them, we, we sort of give them, we don't want to be the, too much of a policeman. So I'm sure a couple of them are probably still smoking. But we are very strict about telling them they have to smoke and counsel them that they got to quit smoking. Do we check your incontinence and everybody know? Mainly because the far ones that live far away, the morning they show up and we check it, our, you know, our five hours of the day is gone, you know. So we'll warn them. My nurse calls them all the week before. Now, how are you doing without smoking? And when they say, then they say, well, you know, I, I had a couple. They would, and then she goes, okay, well, fine. We're just going to move your date back three weeks, <laughs> you know, because they're usually pretty good. They're usually pretty honest when she calls them week before surgery because she's sort of implying she's going to check when they show up, you know. And she goes, you know, it's like a long five-hour drive. I just want to make sure you stop because when you get here, we'd hate to cancel you. You know, and ninety percent of those that are still smoking will say, "Oh my, yeah, I still smoking. I'm going to start right now and give it another month." You know, and sure. she says, "You want a patch? You want the gum? You know, we have all those resources available too." Okay, so Sean, how about uh, for you? Is smoking an absolute contraindication? Certainly, is an absolute contraindication, and but I, I do, you know, Bob and I do the same philosophy. Um, a lot of you know, a lot of counseling saying, you know, the smoking has to stop. It's non-negotiable. Um, you know, I may check your urine, and, you know, many patients are reasonable, and um, I, I do believe them that they seem like reasonable, compliant patients. Uh, if they are the sort of subjectively non-compliant type, then um, I will test them, and I have tested them. I've canceled cases because of it. Yeah. Oh, um, right. yeah. So, um, but, you know, you know, showing them data, so showing them some objective numbers, um Telling them, really stressing how important this is, and say, look, this, you know, this is your fourth repair. You know, this is the last, this is the last time you're going to get a repair. It's got to be done right this time. And, um, most people get it, and I, I really think the wonderful thing is we've got a lot of patients just to stop completely, where they they're post-op and they don't feel the need for it anymore, and, and they're done smoking. Sure. Okay. So uh, l- let me give you both a scenario. So I, I have a patient in my clinic who they've had two or three prior failed repairs, you know, they have a pretty sizable ventral hernia. Um, They're otherwise a good candidate. Uh, How should I be working up that patient in terms of planning my procedure? Uh, And I'm I'm not talking about any of the medical issues or optimizing. I'm just talking about, you know, technical aspects that will affect my procedure. Should I be getting a CT scan on all of those patients? And, And if so, what am I looking for? Uh, and so what's what's the best preoperative workup to help me with my operative planning? I think that uh, two things are, one, you talk about imaging. Uh, most of these, especially if they've had a couple repairs and a sizable defect, they all should get a CAT scan. Uh, ultrasound is not sufficient um, because what the CAT scan not only looks at the size of the defect and the complexity, is it Swiss cheese, is it simple, single defect, um, it shows you the musculature, how your rectus looking, are they atrophied? Um, how's your lateral musculature? Are they, um, is there de-innervated um, external obliques or transversus that's going to make uh, component separation more challenging? So CAT scan really does give you a lot of information. and also, you know, sheds some light on any other intra-abdominal pathology. But um, so CT and imaging, I think, is important. Now, let's say the, the last repair was five years ago and they had a CT a year ago and they're becoming more symptomatic. I don't necessarily repeat a CT. If they have something that's fairly recent, I don't always have to repeat it. There's usually enough information in that one. Um, and then the other planning for me is just to get the, all the old op notes. Uh, it's rare that the patient remembers exactly what happened to them. Did they get component separation? Did they have mesh? What kind of mesh was it? So um, 
um, those are my two main things that I look for for preoperative planning. And Bob, anything else? No, I think that sounds good. Yeah. Matt, can I ask a question here? Um, if a patient has had a prior component separation, uh, what options are left? After component separation, an anterior component release? Say they've had a prior anterior, would you then do a posterior? Maybe that's yeah, a technical question. It kind of depends on how long it's been. There is one paper in the literature now, your Nowitzki, Mike Rosen wrote about doing a transverse abdominis or TARS release or posterior you know, release after anterior release, but you got to allow that, you've got to make sure you got plenty of scar in there. Yeah, I think that's the key is you, because you, 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 you're only leaving the abdominal wall with the internal oblique if you've already taken the external oblique aponeurosis and then you take the transverse abdominis. Now you're only left with the internal. I think in most cases you don't want to take both of those out. You can't do anything you can not to do that. But in the, in the rare case you got nothing else to do, then you can do it. And I would use a very heavy piece of mesh in that retrorectus plane. Yeah. And All right, and that's a, that's a perfect lead-in to talking about some technique issues. Uh, and again, I'm going to show for our presentation on the 7th where they'll actually show you some of these techniques. Uh, so I think it, I think the anterior component separation kind of came into prominence and, and was a great option, and many people started doing it. So why do we need to know anything other than that? Uh, you know, it's a good procedure. You can close big defects. Uh, now there's some other options developed, but, but what are the downsides of an anterior component separation, and why should we be learning anything other than that? Oh, Sean, you want to take it or want me to take it? Well, I'll just I'll just start off and I'll let you go into a little more of the anterior component separation. Sure. Um, I kind of mentioned this before, but it's really important uh, if you're going to embark on large, complex central hernia repairs is to know a couple or if not several different types of procedures. Um, if they've had one procedure, you have to go to another one. And, the, you know, the type of defect and the location of it also dictates what kind of repair you're going to do. So uh, real important just to know a handful of things. Bottom line, have a lot of tools in your toolbox to pull out at the right time. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I think uh, the anterior release, probably the biggest thing we're starting to see now is people going too deep and getting both the internal and the external oblique. Uh, usually this doesn't happen above the arcuate line. You know, we start our, our – we do paraumbilical sparing is one of the big things. So I think doing the big open wide flaps of the anterior release anymore is sort of sort of fading very rapidly because the midline complications are so high. Uh, we know that uh, Demagian published in uh, 19, 2001, he published a very nice paper showing with, com with umbilical sparing techniques, you can decrease your midline uh, dehiscence and midline wound complications by about from 31% down to about 7%. Since about 2002, we've been doing just that, and I would say ours are about the same. We dramatically decreased uh, our midline complications. I think so, and there's four or five different techniques to do that, and we can talk about some of those on the seventh, I guess. But the other thing is if you go too deep, so that's one, paraumbilical or midline wound complications. Number two would be if we start our, our component, anterior component release, we go out to the uh, external oblique, aponeurosis, we make our little incision there, and we take that incision down all the way down to, in some cases, Cooper's ligament. Well, as we get more and more towards the pubis, the external and internal oblique sometimes will fuse lateral to the linea semilinaris. 
and if they fuse lateral to the lynx MLS, it's very easy to get both the internal and external oblique. You just sort of push your, you know, you just take your bovie right on down. All of a sudden, you've only got one layer left. And remember, below the arcuate line, there is no transfer salus. So you, now you've got virtually nothing. So a week or so after surgery, people complain of these big bulges on each side if you got both sides. So we see those. I probably see one of those a month now, and I virtually never saw those. I've created one myself. So I think what I do in that case is I start about one and a half centimeters off the linear semilinearis, and then as I go down towards the pubis, I go out lateral a little bit more to make sure I get out far enough to where they're actually internal external oblique aponeuroses are very different structures. If you're too close to the linear semilinearis, sometimes you can bag both of those. So that that's one issue. Now, I guess the question is, why do you need another issue? And sometimes you just can't get enough. So you either have to add to that a a posterior sheath release, which sometimes will help bring it together. But I think the TARS gives us a bigger and better release situation in some cases. So I'm probably doing, I would guess Sean's probably doing up his big hernias that need release. He's probably doing 75%. Uh, TARS and about maybe 25% external. I'm sort of about 50-50. I would say my bigger ones now, I'm doing TARS, and on, on the smaller ones, I'm doing external oblique aponeurosis. And I okay. even, uh, I'd actually probably even do fewer external oblique releases. I'd probably just do a small handful of those. My go-to procedure is, is a straight uh, Reef-Stofa retrorectus repair. Right, right. For, but if you oh, need a release, though, yeah. What's that? You no, know, if you need a release, what would you right. do? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if I need a release, though, yeah, yes, yeah. I'll do a, a posterior component separation with a tar. Um, and I love that procedure for a lot of reasons. Um, one. So, so, so before you go any further, a lot of people might not even know exactly what a tar is. You want to real quickly define that for them, Sean? So a tar is a transversus uh, abdominis muscle release, and uh, it's basically an extension of the retrorectus. So it starts off as a, as a retrorectus dissection. And once you get to the linea semilunaris, where those neurovascular bundles are coming in, you go just medial to that, and you um, go down into that fascia, and you release and cut um, all the muscle fibers of the transversus abdominis. And uh, the majority of the time, this requires a bilateral release, uh, but there are times where I've done just a unitar, and I've done just one side and not done both. But... Um, uh, the beauty of this procedure is that um, you can really do a lot of variant defects. Some of those challenging locations like sub-xiphoid defects, say somebody's had a cabbage and they went down low and there's a big defect up high, um, you can get pretty wide overlap under the costal margins uh, and under the xiphoid. Uh, you can get suprapubic defect because you're dissected all the way down to the space of retius. Uh, you can get lateral defects, not necessarily just a straight flank hernia, but you can get very wide overlap. Uh, and that's one of the other benefits of this is you get very wide overlap. Kind of going with the Stopa's giant prosthetic reinforcement of the visceral sac, you can get very large mesh or meshes, uh, quilted meshes, um, and really reinforce the entire abdominal wall with this procedure. Um, and the mesh is protected from viscera. It's got some well-vascularized muscle on top. So um, I definitely think it is my go-to procedure for very complex uh, procedures. Now, um, you know, Bob's talking about some great downsides, and, and there certainly are downsides with anything we do. Um, downside of the TAR is it's a fairly new procedure. And we first presented this in 2011, wrote it up in 2012. So it's a new procedure. It's gained a lot of traction, but we don't know what the long-term ramifications are. Will it cause, um, you know, um, 
instability, spinal instability, or, or, or core strength instability. Um, we just don't have any long-term data to tell us one way or the other. Uh, I mean, anecdotally, we're not seeing that. Um, in fact, uh, there's a paper that uh, the group out of Case did with Nowitzki and Rosen, and they looked at CTs post-TAR and they demonstrated, um, obviously, some muscle loss from the transversus abdominis muscles, but there was compensatory hypertrophy of not only the rectus muscles, but also the internal and external oblique muscles. So, yes, you are sacrificing one muscle for the benefit of the others. Uh, and it seems to be a pretty nice procedure, but, um, you know, we'll see what happens in another 10, 20 years. So, so Andrew, uh, Levi, and David, uh, let me just uh, ask you guys, uh, what what's uh, your preferred technique nowadays for these big defects? Are you doing the anterior? Have you adopted the TAR? Uh, we'll start with Andrew. Yeah, uh, great. Uh, Bob, Sean, this is very interesting to me. I read that, that those like you all say the TAR is not something that uh, the average surgeon can read about and then just start doing. I'm doing the retrorectus repair of my hernias. I used to do those anterior component releases, but dislike those midline wound problems that you described. How does a regular guy like me learn to do the TAR? I'd like to do it, but I'm not. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you 100%. This is one you probably want to go take a course, and there's several uh, companies usually that are helping people get up to centers. I think we have a course. I think, uh, you know, if Yuri still has a course there uh, in case. I know Mike Rosen starting a course back now that he moved to Cleveland Clinic. I think also uh, George Denoto in New York's got a little course, a little fellowship thing. But I definitely would not do a TAR without having done it on a cadaver. I don't know. What do you think about that, John? No, I agree. Totally agree. I think, or more than a cadaver. I mean, you know, multiple cadavers. I think you, you really got to know tough. your abdominal wall anatomy and the myofascial planes to to get a good understanding of the tar, and then uh, practice it on several cadaver dissections. Um, you know, the courses that we and other people do are wonderful courses. Sometimes it's just an introduction to the procedure, and then you can take that back with you and practice it on some cadaver labs. Uh, you know, Mike Rosen is also starting to host some more extended uh, fellowships for about a month where he'll bring uh, attending there. They'll get temporary privileges, and he'll really uh, – it's a full immersion, um, not more than just a course, you know, a full immersion uh, fellowship where they do a lot of complex abdominal wall and, uh, you know, learning the TAR and, and other procedures. And uh, perhaps there will be more of those kind of opportunities around uh, the country – where you can get some really a lot of high volume direct uh, education with that procedure, but it's, it's a challenge to learn. Uh, once you learn it, it's a fun one to do. Um, the one note I do want to make, though, and I think Bob, you mentioned it before, was if you're doing an anterior component separation, you don't have enough release with that. Um, it's really advice against doing a posterior component separation at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, pick one and go with it. If you can do an external oblique release, great, go with it. Or if you can do a posterior release with a with a tar, go with that. But don't do them both at the same time because really, if you do that, it really is a high chance of destabilizing the abdominal wall, and they have these big, complex flank lateral hernias that are extremely difficult to repair because you you now burn two bridges there, and you don't only really have much left. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And uh, Levi and David, how about uh, you guys? Have you started doing TARS or retrorectus? 
I I, I mean, I was trained uh, by Andrew and Carney, and I, I do a retrorectus. I think it's a good operation. It gives you a lot of overlap and allows good, uh, you know, approximation to the, uh, the aponeurosis in the midline. My question that I have is, can we – is there a role in the incisional hernia to ever do a lap ventral? Because uh, my kind of bias is that I think it's almost uh, – appears to be when you go and fix them a sham operation – uh, because of all the Swiss cheese defects, and you don't really appreciate where the fascia is, so I think they undersize sometimes the mesh. So my goal is to go for the reef stopa right off the bat, just to get everything out, done, and a nice big wide overlap. Is that wrong, or is there a threshold for where the lap ventral would be appropriate in some of these people? I, you know, I don't think it's wrong. I think you raised some excellent points. Um, Certainly, a lot of I think there's a lot of undersized mesh. Um, really, you need that good four to five centimeter overlap. Um, I, I do think there is a role for laparoscopic ventral hernia repair. Um, my sort of own personal cutoff is at about five centimeters. If it's five centimeters or less. Um, I'll do a I'll do a lap ventral for it. If it's greater than eight or eight or greater, I'm pretty much going to go open. And if it's between that middle range, five to eight. Um, We'll kind of see. If it's a simple defect, I may try laparoscopy. Otherwise, I'll do open. I, I do agree. I think that I think an open repair is a more solid repair, but it's also, you know, a lot more wound morbidity, complication, and length of stay, and pain. Um, one thing I do when I do my lap ventrals is I close all the defects. Yeah. So, um, you know, I do a shoelace repair. I do interrupted figure of ace, and I close all those defects kind of in the same theory of medialization of the rectus muscles, more of that functional abdominal wall. Um, now, um, if there's too much tension on my closure, laparoscopically, that tells me that laparoscopy is probably not the right choice, and that should be an open procedure. Do you um, find that the that the CT scans often will undersize the hernia uh, for the lap ventrals? Because, you know, sometimes you go in there, and you're like, oh, yeah, that didn't look very big, and you're doing a reef stopa, and the fascia is way farther apart than the CT scan ever alluded to. Uh, some, sometimes. I mean, I, I'll go in there, I'll do my own measurements, and, and that's where I, my, sort of my five-centimeter cutoff is my own personal. Any, anything greater than that is, you know, I'm definitely leaning more toward an open kind of repair, whatever, whether it be retrorectus or, or another type of open repair. And Dave, how about you? I've almost 100% adopted the TAR. Uh, last time I did a anterior component separation was probably over a year ago, and that was... Uh, sort of by necessity because the posterior uh, fascia was pretty chewed up from prior infection and mesh and things. Um, one question I had is how do you manage, you've got a really wide diastasis where you've got that attenuated, it's not, not a true defect, but it's the attenuated linea alba. Um, do you still take that all the way up underneath the xiphoid and all the way down to Cooper's ligament, or is there some way to sort of, you know, do a smaller version of, of the retrorectus of the tar? How do, you, how do you manage that attenuated linea alba? No, is is just diastasis recti without any hernia or so hernia? say say large hernia, but then they've also superiorly and inferiorly they've still got some some diastasis uh, that's not a true hernia anymore, but it's not also the the, the muscles are not quite medialized. Uh, you know, there's a great discussion right now on there's a Facebook group. I don't know how many are, are members of it. It's called International Hernia Collaboration, and it's a uh, a group of surgeons around the world that you know social media. But the private group where talk about all kinds of hernia questions or problems and having a little fun with it. And that that topic came up today about 
you have a diastasis and hernia, how do you treat? Would you treat one or both? And um, um, actually, Bob, why don't, why don't you start off with that question? Um, you know, hernia plus uh, diastasis, how do you take care of that? Yeah, I'll fix hernia plus diastasis only because the hernia, if you fix just the hernia, you're going to get a new hernia right above the place where the fixation is. Yep. Yeah, and then and then you'll be chasing the entire thing. So I usually do repair with it. I will extend that up to the area of the diastasis and do a retrorectus repair. You know, those patients are great for retrorectus because you go out lateral there, you pull that muscle back to the middle, and they're very, very happy when they get done. If it's just diastasis alone, I don't fix those. Yeah. Um, I send those to plastic. No, I don't fix diastasis, yeah. And uh, I, tell, I tell them not to go to plastic because then they'll be back with their hernia in a couple of years. <laughs> yes. So, David, real, real quickly before we uh, move on, you said you uh, have pretty much exclusively adopted the TAR. How did you learn how to do it? Is that something you learned in residency, or did you do one of these courses? Um, I learned the retrorectus repair from uh, Mike Sarr, who was here, um, oh, yeah. uh, one of my guys here, and um, and then uh, he scrubbed in with me a couple of times and kind of showed me the lateral release of the transversus abdominis. So kind of had, had the fortunate uh, chance to work with him and him show it to me directly, so that's where I learned it. Oh, great! And and as someone who who did those courses to to learn the tar, I, I would again strongly recommend them. In fact, I did them twice. Uh, I did the first one and started doing them, and then I did the last one with Bob and Sean. So, so uh, I can I can truly testify it's a fantastic course, and uh, uh, you really pick up a lot. And even attending it a second time, uh, as I did. So. Uh, any other questions from the co-moderators on the technical issues? I have a, one quick one, guys. Um, you guys said pick one, the front or the back. Say you've picked it, you've pulled it, and you have a gap. You're not coming together. How do you approach that problem? Yeah, so <clears throat> I'll let Sean do the post of TARS, and I'll tell you what I would do. And Occasionally, if it's like a centimeter or two or three or four, you can take the rectus sheath, not 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 out lateral to the transverse abdominis, but the rectus sheath, and open the rectus sheath a little bit, which will allow your rectus muscle to splay out and get your fascia in the midline. That'll give you an extra two or three centimeters on each side. If you if you're stuck and they're big and you can't get it done, sometimes you have to bridge. I mean, I hate bridging. I do everything I can not to bridge, but occasionally I'll have to bridge. Just make sure you've got good lateral fixation to take the tension off that midline. That do the best you can. Yeah, and the other important point with bridging is, you know, we rarely, if ever, bridge. We hate to bridge, but if you have to, and when I do a tar and I, after I uh, reapproximate the posterior layer, before I put the mesh in, I'll get uh, some kind of clamps on the anterior fascia or the linea alba to be, and I'll pull them together and kind of sort of check the tension on the abdominal wall. I'll make sure that they're still under good paralysis. And if it seems like a lot of excessive tension and I'm going to have a hard time closing this, um, it's one of the few times where I'll use a heavyweight polypropylene mesh. Normally I'm using kind of a midweight macroporous mesh, but if I have a high chance of bridging, then I'll go for that heavyweight um, polypropylene. Um, and my, the most important thing with that is um, closing that fascia. And if it is tight, if I don't think I can run um, a suture to close the anterior sheath, I'll do interrupted figure of eight to uh, slowly close the, the midline. And if, if there is a, a small bridged gap, like you, you suggested, the most important thing is to get some type of soft tissue coverage over that mesh. So I'll, I'll close the skin and, and a few layers on that just in case there's some dehiscence. We got something to cover the mesh and you don't have mesh exposed. 
Do you ever so, lay anything in that gap? I'm sorry? I'm, Do you ever lay anything in that gap? Uh, not to this is a small enough gap, I, I typically do not. Again, as long as I have um, some some kind of soft tissue coverage, good sub-Q tissue, and then and then skin, um, to really get that secured. Now, if, if this is ahead of time, if I know that they are, and I know they're going to have a, a soft tissue defect, um, maybe they've had radiation or major resections, they just have no soft tissue. Um, then I'll you know I'll talk to my plastics colleagues to see if they uh, if they think a flap would be um, a reasonable option to cover that mesh up. So Can in I that situation, sorry, in, in that situation where you do have to bridge and you can't get it completely together and you still have some defect but you have a mesh underlay, uh, is there any role for adding an overlay? You know, even a biologic or a regular piece of mesh as an overlay to reinforce that. Uh, there's not a lot of data to support that, adding sort of a sandwich technique. You know, uh, probably the biggest series was done by George Zanotto, who just recently published like 60 patients with the, with sort of that. But he has, he's basically closed it. Now he tried it with just a little gap and then with a little bridge, and you get fluid collection in there and you get into more trouble than it's worth. So I think the bridging and then laying two layers in a deep and then an upper layer is not a good idea. If I can make a, a final word, we're talking about technique just because we haven't talked about it yet, yet, and that's the onlay technique. Um, you know, Guy Veller and his team uh, have, um, you know, recently popularized that even more. It's getting a little more traction here. Um, I don't do too much onlay, um, but I, I do more. It's kind of my backup. Uh, if they have, you know, a small recurrence, say a lateral recurrence or a small defect, or I don't want to enter the abdomen, I think an onlay is a nice technique. Um, it does require skin flaps, which I think is the biggest drawback of it. But, um, you know, you can get the fascia closed, put a piece of, I use a piece of polypropylene mesh typically. Um, using Guy Veller's technique, I use skin staples to put, uh, to sort of initially attach that to the fascia, and I use to seal as, a, as the final sort of way to fix it, fixate it to the tissue. And then I leave drains in there, and the drains stay in there for quite some time until there's not much coming out. Yeah, I want you to know the first time he did that, I, I went in the room and they had to resuscitate me. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> okay. to, to see all the skin staples on yeah, the yeah, yeah, just it makes me crazy. <laughs> I did. Uh, did one of the other guys have a question? I think I interrupted. I, I had uh, one quick question. What? Uh, how do you address the large hernia in the posterior sheath, the sac? Do you excise the sac and close the posterior sheath at risk of though putting your posterior sheath on tension? Or do you close, imbricate over the sac? Uh, that way you don't violate the posterior sheath. Yeah, you can do either. Uh, I think I like the concept of trying to imbricate it down, take it down off the sac and make it loose and floppy, and then use it actually as a barrier. In many cases, I'll use the sac. If I can't quite get my posterior sheath together, I'll use a piece of the sac as a patch. Yep. So I, uh, I like to save that because usually it's pretty thick and nice viable tissue. It's very thin but still pretty tense, so it'll work. So I don't I don't take out I always take the hernia sac out if I'm pretty much done. I'll leave the hernia sac in until I got my posterior sheath closed. Yep. And then I'll then I'll see if I need it or not. Awesome. So. Okay, well uh I think we'll uh we'll wrap it up with uh, a few minutes on post op issues. So so obviously these are big complex surgeries and you know what are the, the top two or three post op concerns or problems we should be watching for? I'll start with you, Bob. 
Yeah, I think obviously infections are a big one. These big walls, these usually obese patients have multiple prior wax on their belly. So, you know, we give them good prophylaxis. We stop it at the, when we put the last staple on or whatever. We don't give 24 hours worth. We watch them close. We give them VANC if there's any history of MRSA uh, in, the, in their life, you know, basically, because we know that pretty good data, I think, out of Vanderbilt supports that. Uh, and we watch, and that's our biggest. Next biggest thing is post-op pulmonary compromise. If we've really pulled them together pretty tight, we do know the data shows we increase intra-abdominal pressure in a prospective study before and after releases. But still, they'll get into trouble. They'll get to recovery awake and alert and taking some deep breaths. And then within the next half hour, they sort of settle down. They take those little guppy baths. And next thing you know, they're hypoxic and hypercapnic, and we're, we're reintubating. We're taking them off to the ICU to watch them overnight. So, and actually, along with that question, uh, you do a standard tar, big hernia. Where are you putting your drains, and how many? Standard tar, just put two drains. I use 19 French flakes, two of them, and they sit um, right on top of the mesh. So they're in between the mesh and the anterior fascia. Now you just go one on each side, and I loop one. Um, it, it, each one of them goes on the sides, and I cross them in the middle. And so one's getting uh, inferiorly for gravity drainage of it and the one superiorly. Um, so that's routinely just those two drains. If they have a really, really big hernia sac and a lot of dead space, and I try to remove as much of the hernia sac as possible, I may leave a, tra a channel drain in that for just a couple of days to try and uh, make sure that no seroma um, accumulates in it. And same for you, Bob? I, I do the same, yeah. So do you guys, just another quick question. Uh, you know, when I was at the AAST, Dr. Diaz talked about he only puts in biologic, even if he's doing a tar or a retrorectus. Um, it's a hard, that one's a hard one for me to swallow, largely based on my training, and we know that the biologic's not necessarily as durable, uh, and you only want to do this once. Uh, is, do you think that's a, a reasonable way to do it, or should we, if, unless there's some contraindication, should we put in a, a nice piece of macroporous polypropylene in all these people? I, I'm I'm shocked that anyone would say they only use a biologic on these big cases. I I I can't even imagine what that would do to the budget of our hospital. We spend 1.2 million already on on biologics a year here. That put us about five million a year. I mean that that's craziness. Come on, that that's crazy. Uh, we use I use uh, you know a macroporous polypropylene in the retroactive plane routinely probably seventy five percent of our cases. Uh, Sean, you say seventy five? Yeah, that's a that's a good number. Yeah, and you know somewhere around there, and you know sure when they've had prior MRSA, we still got some little contamination. We took down an ostomy or we had enterotomies. Yeah, I'll go to a biologic, but to go everybody in that plane to put a biologic would break us. And, and there's no indication for that. As you know, uh, Carbonell, as you may know, Carbonell and Rosen, those guys published a very nice paper showing, you know, they pushed the limit and pushed the envelope with the polypropylene. I'm not quite to where they are yet, but I'm using a lot of, of synthetic mesh. And, you know, we have some bioabsorbables now, which I think are an interesting option in there. They're not as expensive as the biologics. I think biologics are very valuable. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a place for them. And like I say, we use a lot of them. Uh, but they should be used where there's data to support their use. Okay. Well, uh, I want to thank my co-moderators, uh, Levi Proctor, Andrew Bernard, and Dave Morris, and we really want to thank uh, Dr. Martindale and Dr. Orenstein uh, for a great session, and we're uh, especially looking forward to seeing the live webinar where they're going to demonstrate some of these uh, techniques uh, 
and, and show us all show us all how it should be done. So thanks a lot, Bob and Sean. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to speak to you. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, Remember that all you need to do is look to the east.